who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. Nineteen, the spring ball. As the dispersed house of the hidden hand waited and watched, a disturbing new trend began to emerge. There was a distinct uptick in the culling of children all over the city. It seemed that there was now a new urgency, a new frenetic pace to the kidnappings, as if some critical quota had to be met soon. And the attacks, it, had also increased. Max found himself doubling over in pain several times a day on average now. He knew that wherever they were, Romani, Faliero, Gustav, Sambaba, and Michelle were all feeling the same thing. Romani relayed to Max and Ian, through a delivered handwritten note, that Sambaba had seen sky chambers rolling through New York on no less than 12 occasions in the space of a single week. Max nodded. He had spotted them twice near the Peking, trolling through the night sky like pterodactyls. And Gustav had even witnessed Madworth herself pluck a boy of eight from his father's side in broad daylight. As he told it, Madworth had opened her umbrella with a quick, deft move, smooth and hypnotic, and swished it in between the boy and his father like a wedge. The man didn't seem to notice at all. The boy looked back towards his father for a moment, but saw only the spread metal claws of Madworth's umbrella, webbed with stretched inky black cloth. At that, the boy had become disoriented, as if by merely breaking the line of sight between them, Madworth had brought a haze of forgetfulness down upon both the boy and his father. The crone had then taken the small boy's hand and led him to a nearby rooftop and stepped onto a waiting sky chamber and vanished. The father had wailed inconsolably when he'd realized that his boy was missing, blaming himself for a lapse of watchfulness. Max chewed down his outrage at this, his hand shaking with anger as he read. How many more kids was it going to take? When would they do something? But one thing was clear. The Nuberians were becoming bolder, more brazen with each passing day. They were either that sure of themselves or in that much of a hurry. Either way, Max was itching to attack the nest more than ever, to bring it all to an end as quickly as possible. But Romani still counseled patience, 
hoping to gather more information before risking everything. As usual, Max bristled at this, but Ian simply had to look down at the infernal green ring on his hand to remember why patience was actually sometimes a good idea. But that was when they got a break of sorts. Gustav had been staking out Sunpike's suites, and he'd learned of a meeting that was to take place in two days' time. Madworth, it seemed, had arranged a face-to-face with another party via the unwitting Cryptonesiac confectioner. This said meeting was to take place at the Society Spring Ball at the Waldorf Astoria. According to Gustav, Madworth was not pleased at all about this. She did not relish crowds, but clearly felt her hand was forced for some reason. She had to attend. Someone with the drop on Madworth? That in itself was reason enough to go. Romani announced to the hidden hand that some of them would attend this ball, attempt to witness this meeting, and learn what they could of the machine and the location of the nest. Hastily, Romani arranged through her various connections around town for invitations. Her wealth and reclusiveness were both well-known amongst the elite. Her request for invitations was certainly unusual, out of character, but welcome. After all, Romani was a mystery. European old money in the new world. Someone who did not come out into society very often. Her very presence would make the night all the more memorable. And so, a tailor was sent by Romani to the Peking. He measured Max and Ian and then disappeared again. By early morning, he'd reappeared with perfectly fitting tuxedos, top hats, and shoes for Max and Ian, and another note from Romani instructing them to be ready for a coach to come by four o'clock that afternoon. Max and Ian fidgeted in their uncomfortable evening wear as the carriages approached the Waldorf Astoria. Romani eyed them both with amusement. Valiero sat next to her, silently stewing as always. Gustav would arrive separately, Max and Ian were told. However, Michelle and Sambava would not be coming. Asians were not accepted in society at this time, and Michelle had not even been told of the ball. Tentatively, Max asked Romani why not. Romani flicked a look of fire at him for a moment and then said, This is exactly the sort of thing which would make her reckless. It is simply not a good idea for her to attend. Look, Ian said suddenly, pointing into the sky ahead of them. Hmm, looks like Madworth's coach has arrived, Max said, following Ian's gaze. A sky chamber was approaching. It drifted in the air above them for a moment, and then glided upwards, landing at last on the roof of the Astoria. Right on schedule, Ian concurred. Romani nodded and then smiled at Ian. What? Ian said, feeling self-conscious suddenly. You look quite dashing with your hair like that, you know, Romani answered with a twinkle in her eye. Ian's usually wild hair was slicked down and meticulously combed back. Ian ran his hand along his hair. Well, I hate it, just for the record, he said glumly. Well, it is a little early in the century for punk rock, Max said. Try to fit in, will you? And this is important. Please resist the impulse to hunt down, say, Thomas Edison and chat him up about microchips or give him the formula for Fomastic or something, okay? Ian snorted a laugh and nodded. The carriage rolled to a stop and the footman opened the door. Madame Europa Romani and Gaspar Faliero stepped from the coach. Max and Ian did their best to appear cultivated and fell into step behind them. Out of the corner of his eye, Max noticed Dr. Gustav arriving in another carriage by himself. In scant moments, they were inside the hotel. Sparkling gold, opulent massive marble columns, and a plain of endless lush red carpet filled Max's vision. Servants dressed in crisp knife-white shirts and black coats bustled around everywhere you looked. But Max quickly noticed a gentleman should not be looking at servants. Servants were supposed to be invisible, like appliances. Internally, this bothered him. It was somehow a very Newberian style of thinking. 
but for the moment he complied so as not to draw attention to himself. Next, the foursome entered the vast ballroom itself. Max gasped. He'd never seen something so grand before. Elegantly dressed gentlemen and their ladies glided across a massive glassy floor that appeared to be made of sparkly ice. As they walked down the stairs, Max couldn't help but stare at the ceiling, far above them as the sky and vaulting like a cathedral. It was decorated with a sharp gold leaf pattern that shone glistening in the light of a million candles, many of which hung suspended in the vast space above them in seemingly infinite concentric hoops and rings of candelabras. Ian nudged him. Stop gawking. At least try to be cool. Max snapped his gaze forward. Oh, sorry, he whispered sheepishly. The people of 1912 now filled his vision. Well, the rich people, anyway. Everyone wore a self-important, bored look on their face. Several dropped their gazes on Max and Ian, and, seeming to discern at once that they were nobody important, looked away. Not a Vanderbilt, not a Rockefeller, not a Morgan. Then they yawned and looked elsewhere. However, Madame Romani was attracting some attention. The women seemed to scowl at her, but the lingering gazes of many of the men said that they found her ashen Eastern European looks exotic, different. And Faliero himself seemed right at home in this crowd, like he was born wearing a tux. Oh, he knew the world of money and its affectations, all right. That much was immediately clear. He'd already engaged several nearby men in fast-talking low whispers, and they were mesmerized by whatever he was saying, nodding and smiling, eyes transfixed with dull amazement. There were multiple levels of balconies above them, also filled with people. Girls in elegant dresses peeked through small binoculars at the throngs below, scanning for wealthy suitors. Hey, that's a good place for us to be, Max thought. We could see a lot better up there. But Faliero seemed to have had the same thought. He snapped his fingers at Max and Ian, and the foursome were quickly led by a white-gloved servant to a stairwell and then up to a balcony on the third floor, magnificently appointed with its own table and bottle of wine. When they were seated, Faliero tipped the servant handsomely and said pointedly that they did not wish to be disturbed further. The servant bowed and scurried away. Now, Faliero said to all of them, we don't want to be too obvious, but here are some binoculars. See if you can spot the mad wolf out there. Max and Ian nodded, taking the small black eyepieces. Ian raised his at once. Faliero removed his white gloves and whispered something in Romani's ear, and she laughed. He handed her a set as well, and then scowled when he discovered Max watching the two of them. Well, get looking! Max nodded and snorted out a laugh. Almost at once, he spied Dr. Gustav. He was talking with four older men with handlebar mustaches, having a scholarly discussion, it seemed. Like Faliero, Gustav was also at home in society, easily able to blend in. Gustav flicked the gaze upwards for a split second. He'd felt someone staring at him, but he quickly identified that it was only Max and returned to his idle banter. Max turned the glasses towards the ballroom floor again. He didn't see much more of interest for ten minutes. But then he nearly choked when his gaze came to rest on Michelle. He stared for a good half minute to make sure he wasn't seeing things. Oh, but it was her all right. She was wearing a deep blue gown of silk, and her mane of tightly curled blonde hair was tied up. She was clearly enjoying herself, throwing her head back and laughing, the lighting and the attention being lavished upon her. Max would have laughed himself at the sight of her, Michelle, the wild child, all done up like this, if he hadn't been so startled by her presence. What the hell was Michelle doing here? At once, her gaze flicked around the room, feeling the shock of connection. She knew that someone had noticed her. Max instantly closed his mind like a flower. He became less noticeable. Michelle whipped her head around in sudden confusion. 
And then Max's veins froze. For Michelle was unmistakably in the company of Madworth. The crone sidled up next to her out of nowhere. Her pudgy face nosed its way right in there, her corpulent form packed into a black and lavender dress, as though she were attending a funeral, not a ball. She wasn't smiling. A single jewel the size of a small fist hung about her neck. The two of them were clearly there together, and comfortable being so. In an instant, Max understood. Michelle had been the traitor. It had been she who had planted the book in the study, the one with the sham book guard. There was no doubting, no denying it now. And Michelle had never expected the House of the Hidden Hand to show up at a ball. She could never have guessed that they would come to something like this. It was certainly not Romani's style. While Romani, Feliero, and Ian were buried in their binoculars, Max quickly slipped out the back of the balcony. He reached into his pocket and brought out the Umphalos bracelet. For a moment, he cursed his weakness, heard his inner Gustav chastise him. But this was necessary. He needed every advantage he could get. He slipped it on his wrist. Max pushed his way through the cacophonous throngs of the crowd below, avoiding the waltzing and spinning revelers on the dance floor, skirting the edges until he was within inches of Michelle and Madworth. Madworth stepped away to speak with another man, and Max slipped in and quickly took Michelle's hand and pulled her through the crowd. Her attention snapped up instantly when he touched her. She knew immediately who it was. Her eyes filled with flames, but nonetheless she allowed herself to be led away. In moments, they were in an adjoining corridor out of sight. Now! Max hissed at her with a finger jutting in her face. You're going to explain to me what in the hell you're doing with Madworth, and why you betrayed all of us. Michelle just looked back at him with pain in her eyes. What are you doing here, Max? She whispered. What am I doing here? What are you doing here? You think I'm a traitor, don't you? You think I'm cruel. What am I supposed to think? Max almost shouted in her face. I'm here for ten minutes, and you show up with Madworth. What I want to know is, how long have you and that witch been palling around? Michelle turned to go in disgust, but Max was enraged. Roughly, he grabbed her shoulder and pushed her back into the wall. No, you're not leaving that easily. Her eyes flared a warning, and Max remembered what she'd done to Marvin Sparkle. Oh, he knew what she was capable of. But right now, he didn't care. He was going to get to the bottom of this. His fierce gaze held her pinned to the wall and would not let go. Yes, Max, she replied. You are right. And Mrs. Madworth offers me a life that Madame Romani cannot. I have grown up. I am no longer a little girl. So that's why you put the book with a fake book guard in the study? That's why you gave Madworth's goons an open path right into the house? Where they could have slit our throats when we slept? Michelle looked at Max as though he were an ignorant person. Ah, oh, Max... She would not have hurt anyone. If you only knew her like I did, you would understand. Max exploded. He grabbed Michelle by the throat and pulled her into an alcove behind a large plant. She gasped as he pinned her physically to the wall. Max leaned in close and rasped. You saw those kids? Vadim and Vanya? You saw what she did to them. She's not making them cookies and milk, you know. She's tormenting them. Michelle breathed and gasped and tears streamed down her cheeks. Her ribcage strained against the confines of her dress. I could burst your heart right now, you know, she whispered back. Right now I could kill you. You know I could. Then go ahead, Max taunted. Do it. They locked gazes for a long moment. I tried to explain to you, Michelle sobbed. I wanted you to come with me in the park. I tried to tell you. We are perfect for each other. You can understand me like no other man can. 
You are a Nuberian like they are. I understand you, Max said incredulously. I understand you? I don't understand you at all. I don't understand how anyone in their right mind could go to Madworth. What did she promise you? What are you getting out of all this? Michelle jutted her chin out proudly. A life. A real life. Mrs. Madworth will see to it that I debut in society properly, that I am not stuffed away in a closet to rot, that I am accepted, cherished, and married to a man worthy of me. She paused for a second and then said quietly, I was hoping that man might be you. Max let her go in disgust. She quivered against the wall and let out a fresh round of sobs. What is the machine? What does it do? Max asked her simply. She shook her head. I don't know. Max's eyes shot her a look of rage. I really do not know, Michelle repeated. But Mrs. Madworth, she says when it is finished that she will be able to return to Niburu. That, that, that I'll have the plant of life among our riches. Not that it matters much. I don't need to live forever. I just want one real life. She paused and looked at Max for a long moment, then wrapped herself around him, bursting into a plea. Oh, Max, you are on the losing side. You can't win this. And I don't understand why. You're not even human. You're Nuberian. Why do you care so much? I'm just being sensible. Forget about them. We can live a real life together and be happy. Alors, please. Max gently pushed her away. Romani is here, he said. Michelle visibly jumped in her skin, startled. So is Faliero and Gustav. He watched her face turn white, clenched with panic. You should leave before they see you. You will tell them about me, won't you? She whispered. Yes, but not until after you're gone, Max replied, not meeting her gaze. She nodded and swallowed tears. Go, Max repeated, not looking at her. She straightened her ruffled dress and wiped tears from her eyes. Then tell them, Michelle whispered. Tell them when they see me again it will be different. I will not be kind. Max looked up with a glint of hope. You know, I'd ask you to come back with me now. Forget about Madworth. Oh, Romani'd be angry, but she'd forgive you, even now. And we could use your help. I'm sure the things you know now about Madworth and the machine. But mostly, Romani would just be glad to have you back. She loves you, you know. Michelle almost broke into sobs. But I know you don't believe that. Michelle opened her exquisite mouth to say something, but then seemed to change her mind and only said, Yes, tell them. Next time I will not be kind, Alor. Max nodded and left. Where is Max? Romani said suddenly. Feliero and Ian pulled their gaze out of their spyglasses and looked around the balcony. Max was nowhere to be seen. Bloody hell, Ian spat. None of them had noticed him leave. There, Valiero said suddenly, pointing into the crowd near the orchestra. All three of them looked through their binoculars. Max was very near to Madworth. He was directly behind a man she was speaking with. Ian strained, but couldn't see who this man was, only that he had a black ponytail slicked and pulled back around a thin head. Valiero whispered in surprise. Michelle is down there also, he said. What? Romani spot. Where? Valiero pointed. Just as he did so, Max grabbed Michelle's arm and pulled her deftly through the crowd. Romani cursed in her native tongue as she watched them both exit the ballroom. Why is that girl doing here? Romani hissed. And Max! But then understanding crept across Faliero's face, 
A hand went up to his mouth, but he didn't dare voice it. Romani was a split second behind him. Her eyes went down to Madworth and then back up to Faliero's. I don't guess you can't keep a bull like that away from a girl like this, eh? Ian said, then furrowed his brow. Wait, 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 reverse that. You don't think? Romani said to Faliero in horror. But it was clear Faliero did think, and he would be the last one to think so. He had been so certain that Max had been the traitor. But now it was clear Michelle was the traitor, and she had been all along. Romani's hand flew up to her mouth in disbelief, and a tear streamed down her cheek. But Ian was paying this no attention. He had focused on Madworth and the man she was speaking with. The man turned and took a sip of wine, and that's when Ian saw that his face was slashed and healed and mottled and scarred. White. Jonathan Roseblood Serranus. Creeping slither sticks, Ian breathed. What is it? Romani asked, sensing something beyond Michelle was amiss. It's Serranus. That's Johnny Siren. He's the guy we told you about in the story of the pocket. He's the one down there talking to Madworth. Romani's eyes went wide. That is the same man? What is he doing here? Faliero asked. Well, that's past Serranus, Ian replied. 1912 Serranus. Well, present Serranus to you, anyway. He's about 300 years old right now, give or take. Uh, he'll be 400 by the time we meet him. But that siren lives here in New York. Not surprised he'd be at this ball, actually. This is kind of his scene. But how does he know Madworth? Faliero asked. Ian snorted. No idea, but that also doesn't really surprise me. Siren always seems to sniff out any Nuberia nearby, regardless of whatever century he's in. Would he recognize you two? Romani asked. Ian shook his head. Probably not. He's seen Max before, that is, when Max looked like a twelve-year-old. Ian thought for a second. Siren's about due to get his rum spike with absinthe and set to the Pyramid of the Arches. But that might have already happened to this Siren. Or not. But it doesn't matter. He was knocked out the whole time. He wouldn't remember that. So the answer is no, Romani concluded. Yes, Ian said. Uh, no, uh, right, I mean the answer is no. Madworth and Siren spoke for a few minutes on the ballroom floor, and then began moving off to the opposite side. They headed for an exit or an adjoining room, somewhere more private to conduct their business. Romani stood suddenly, collecting herself. We have to find out what they're talking about. Gustav suddenly looked up from the floor below. Romani gazed at him and made a subtle gesture. Gustav threw his arms up. He didn't know what she wanted. He simply couldn't see Madworth from where he was. Romani made another gesture that said, Never mind. Gustav does not see her. I will have to go. Gaspar, remain here with Ian, and keep your eyes open. Faliero nodded. Be careful, Europa. As Max re-entered the ballroom, he nearly collided with Johnny's siren. Trying to hide his shock, Max slid into the crowd nearby, and then noted that Madworth was following Siren. They were headed towards the same hallway that he and Michelle had just been in. Realizing this was a unique opportunity, Max fell into step behind them. They were headed upstairs towards one of the balcony boxes. Within moments, Siren and Madworth were seated in the balcony. Max watched from the stairs as they went through the thick velvet curtains. Max casually slid in behind a nearby plant. He opened the edge of the curtains slightly. He nodded with grim satisfaction. He could easily see them and hear everything they were saying. I detest such gatherings, Madworth grumbled, settling into her seat. I wish that you had not insisted on meeting me here. 
Oh, but I'm sure you understand why I chose it, Siren replied. The creme de la creme of New York society is assembled beneath us. You would not dare assault me openly in such a public place. No, and I always guarantee my own safety. Madworth snorted. The creme de la creme of talking animals, perhaps, which isn't saying much. And anyway, I could poison you with a prick of a needle and tell everyone you'd had too much to drink. Or I could snap your neck so quickly that no one here would see, and it would merely seem as if you had fallen asleep. Siren twirled his ruby red cane and laughed softly. I have men watching. You are in crosshairs even now. Siren nodded down into the crowd, and then into an alcove behind a statue of Zeus, and then at a balcony across the room. In each, a man was positioned, subtly watching, and aiming a concealed weapon at Siren's own balcony, presumably at Madworth. Madworth hissed. You dare? My dear Mrs. Madworth, Siren said, waving this away. I mean no disrespect. It is merely a precaution. I am in many ways at your mercy, and I know that you are mm, practical. You will not pay for that which you may simply take, yes? Madworth growled. Do not think that you are safe, Mr. Seranus. I could easily take care of those men as well. Siren shrugged again. There are others I have not revealed to you. Siren crossed his legs in annoyance. But this is academic and so unpleasant. We did not come here to threaten one another, yes? We came to discuss business and exchange of information. Madworth nodded sullenly. First, let us no longer bandy pretenses. We need to drop them if we are to have an honest discussion. Madworth grunted for him to continue. I know that you are immensely ancient, that you are from the mythological planet of the gods found in the ancient Sumerian text, a world they name Niburu. Madworth's eyes flashed as he said this. She clearly hadn't expected Siren to have this kind of knowledge. Ah, yes, I know all about your world. Well, as much as can be gleaned from careful study of archaeological odds and ends, ancient human texts and the like. I know, for example, that our conventionally accepted history is a sham, that truth has been hidden beneath the sands of time. Man has forgotten how he began, as your slaves. Understandable how we would want to forget that unpleasant chapter, no? Siren laughed. Madworth sucked saliva through her teeth, making a sound of utter contempt. Get to the point, the sound said. I am human, Mrs. Madworth, an heir of that which Enki bestowed upon our kind long ago, and I wish the prize of Gilgamesh. That is why I am at the bargaining table today. Madworth laughed, the cackle of a crone. <laughs> Ask for the stars. Such things are not granted to humans. Things of Nibiru are for Nuberians, and even then... Much is granted only to Nuberians of royal blood. And besides, I have no plant of life to give you, Mr. Serranus. It grows only in the soil of my home world. Siren's brow furrowed. But surely you have conveyance. You have arrived here on Earth. I have no conveyance to Nibiru. The way is closed. It has been since the ancient days. The gate of the heavens is shut tight against us. Siren was at a loss. But uh, you have sky chambers. I have seen them. Madworth nodded. I do, but travel within this world is one thing, and travel to Nibiru is quite another. 
The distances are vast, Mr. Soranus, beyond your comprehension. Sky chambers alone are not enough. The way of Anu, a road in the sky, was built long ago. It has since been closed in antiquity, as I have said. Siren struggled to comprehend. The way of Anu? Ah, yes, I have read of it. His eyes lit up, his intuition jumping. It is... the way is some kind of... Uh, a chain of boosters. Between here and Nibiru. Something that pushes sky chambers between the worlds. Madworth nodded with a trace of a smile. You are clever for a bit more than a monkey. The way has been closed since my kind departed from this world four thousand years ago. Enlil had the road destroyed behind him as he fled, so that humans could not use it, should they one day learn the secrets of riding the clouds. Siren's eyes narrowed. Well then, uh, if I may be so bold, uh, why are you here, Mrs. Madworth? Why did you not return with your people, with Enlil, when he left? She snarled. We were left behind, as punishment. Ah, you are one of those who rebelled against Enlil, at the mines in the Abzu, Siren said. Madworth looked up sharply at him. No, imbecile! Does it appear to you that I would ever work in a mine? Siren shook his head, suitably chastised. It most certainly does not. Your pardon. Madworth regarded him coldly for a moment and then said, It was the second war, after the deluge, over control of the pyramid on the Giza Plateau. Siren looked up in surprise. War? There was war between Nuberians? Here on Earth? I thought war was rare for Nuberians. It was, Madworth replied until we started mixing with humans, living with them. Many of us went native. Your animal side, your primitive bloodlust, it was contagious. It eventually got to be too much. Rivers of blood flowed. The eye of life could only be used so many times to bring the dead back. We could not keep killing one another like this. Anu finally ordered us to depart. He quarantined the earth from further contact. It was forbidden to Niberians. Not for your sakes, but for our own to keep your plague of war and bloodshed from spilling over and infecting Nibiru itself. Siren nodded. Ah, that explains much. I had always wondered why your kind had withdrawn so suddenly. As I was saying, we sided against Enlil. With Enki's renegade son, his majesty, Ra, Falcon of the Horizon, and the second war for control of Egypt and the Great Pyramid, a war that ended with Nurgle and Nunurta unleashing upon us the false sun, to this day, a colossal black scar festers across the Sinai Peninsula. And Enlil never forgot it. He does not let a thing like that go. Those of us who survived this final blow, he left here on Earth as punishment to wallow and wander amidst the black-headed ones for millennia. Madworth seemed to have suddenly annoyed herself. She looked up abruptly at Siren and realized she'd given him a great deal of information and had received nothing in return. Uh, thank you, Siren replied carefully, seeing the look in her eye. I appreciate this knowledge, uh, but the, how can I return the favor? Her eyes narrowed. There is a conclave of humans. Talented humans, I must admit, but an infestation nonetheless. Here in New York, they are versed in things of Nibiru. Until recently, we knew exactly where they were, but there was an incident, and they have since dispersed. That, unfortunately, is something we cannot tolerate. There's a certain project we are near to completing. We must have no interference. Ah, 
Siren said, smiling, his eyes wide with recognition. This must be the long-awaited machine. Madra's eyes flashed with surprise. How is it you know of that? Oh, two hundred years ago in Italy, I first learned of it. A Renaissance drawing. Something that most believed was a device of da Vinci's. But I knew it was a Nuberian project. But tell me, have you built it? What does it do? Madworth snorted. That is not for your ears. Siren looked irritated, but bowed. As you wish. Worry instead about those people I mentioned. We need to know where they are. I understand that you are a man of means, Mr. Saranus. A man with eyes all over the city. Siren nodded. This is true, he said. Well, I want you to find these people for me. Siren smiled. I see, he considered. I can do what you ask. He brought out a small notepad and stick of charcoal. Do you have the names of these people? Yes, Madworth replied. Madame Europa Romani. Dr. Carlos Gustav. Gaspar Faliero. Wait, uh, surely not the magician Gaspar Faliero, Siren interrupted, stopping his mad scribbling. Yes, the same, Madworth replied, irritated. As I have said, they are talented. There's also a Chinaman called Sambava, and an African named Marvin Sparkle, and two young men, Ian Keating and Max Quick. Max started as Madworth said his name. Would Siren recognize it? Probably not, Max thought. After all, his younger self had been using the name Max Quick for less than a year now. Dunkirk had only given it to him in 1911. Odds were therefore very good that Siren didn't know it. And as for Marvin Sparkle, that was a surprise. It seemed that Sparkle was not in league with Madworth after all. She clearly regarded him as an enemy. But Siren merely nodded slowly and said, Gaspar the Great I will know on sight, but these others I have never heard of. Do you have descriptions? Madworth hissed in annoyance. The names will have to suffice. Can you do it? Can you find them? Siren leaned back. And why should I do this? If not a plant of life, then how will you pay me? Madworth considered and then said, You know of Nibiru. Like most men who have such knowledge, the Berrian devices probably interest you. Siren nodded. We have a healthy collection. Whispering stones and follows. Diamond gaunt. The singular eye, Siren whispered intensely. Do you have it? Madworth almost smiled. We do. It is a rare and useful gem I once owned. It was taken from me. I should like it back. Madworth nodded. Agreed. Siren stood. Then it is settled. We have a bargain. Madworth stood as well. Suddenly a shadow fell across her face. You have betrayed me, Saranus, she growled. Siren looked suddenly perplexed. Betrayed? No, Mrs. Madworth, I assure you. But Madworth was not paying attention to him. She was sniffing around, probing. But someone is here. Someone has heard. With a start, Max realized that he'd been detected. He rose from his hiding place and whooshed down the hallway into an unused adjoining smaller ballroom. But Madworth hissed like a cat. She'd felt him. She knew he was here. Swiftly, she followed. Her eyes filled with ink, and her hand clawed at the air in front of her. Max felt his power draining out of him. Fear clouded his heart. He sank back into a normal run. His ability to whoosh fell away, and then freakishly, he collapsed, too weak even to stand. No! He was laying on the floor. 
Madruth and Siren entered the darkened room and stood over him as he lay, helpless. So, Madworth spat, there is a spy here after all. One of those very humans we seek, yes? Max coughed. His body felt heavy, overpowered with exhaustion and tiredness. Still, it was astonishing for Max to actually hear Johnny Siren ask Madworth, Do you know who he is? But Madworth ignored Siren. Who else is here? Madworth growled at Max. I know... Answer me, Madworth demanded. Go to hell, Max choked out. His heart fluttered in panic. He could not summon his power in this state. His mind was a gibbering riot. He longed to feel the shooting stars in his flesh, the argent starburst he had chewed with Gustav, but he simply could not connect with his power. Fear flowed through him absolutely, and Gustav had been right. This made him utterly powerless in the one. Madworth growled. You insolent brat! I've been called that before, Max grunted. I will stomp the life from you, my young friend. I will walk with heavy feet upon your limbs, your back, your head, and I will make blood wine from you. Madworth spun her umbrella, and a shimmering appeared in the air at the end of it. The fabric of reality shuddered and then coalesced into a super-heavy ball, a distortion, a knot in the universe. Madworth made a fist and hurled it in pantomime at Max. The distortion leapt and obeyed her gesture. Fear gushed from Max. He threw up his hands, covering himself. But the super-heavy thing was going to crush him, mash him like a bug. And then he felt it shatter, break to pieces, as if it were a wave upon some great rock. Now, standing between himself and Madworth, was Madame Bramani. It had been she who'd foiled Madworth's distortion. Madworth stood at the ready, hands gnarled like claws out in front of her. In one hand, she held her thick umbrella, opened and twirling. Romani stood opposite her, tall, half-smiling, placing herself between Madworth and Max. You, Madworth hissed with recognition, you're the gypsy girl. Romani nodded slowly and stepped more fully into the light. She wished to be seen. She wished to be known. You remember me. I am touched. But you were dead. I made certain. There was poison on your lips. Not as dead as I led you to believe, Crone. What are they talking about, Max thought. Did Madworth and Romani actually know one another? But you were only... Twelve, Romani finished for her. Yes, I was young, but I had knowledge even then. Enough to stop my heart, my breathing, and yet live. And stay that way, at least long enough for you to leave. Ah, oh, yes, I still remember. I hear the screams of the village, and your cackling in my sleep to this very day. Your pogrom, the way you scolded the green countryside to pale brown dirt, the way you torched the wagons and tents. But that was over three hundred years ago. You're human, a black-headed one. You should be dead. I've learned much, witch. I no longer require food or water, or even sleep. Cold cannot touch me. Fire cannot burn me. And the illusion of my body no longer fools my mind. I no longer age. Siren blinked visibly when she said these words. Madworth's upper lip curled, 
revealing her yellowing, crowded eye teeth. The years had not been as kind to her, even if she was a Nuberian. She'd apparently not mastered the state of mind that bestowed agelessness. Ah, Madworth said. I see now that I should have hacked you to pieces rather than simply leaving you lying broken in that orchard. Trust me, I won't make the same mistake again. Romani laughed. You won't get the chance. I have new allies, Madworth hinted dangerously. I know of your allies, Archons. You dare. And those foul beings never strike a bargain that is not horrendously in their favor. You will pay for that friendship sooner or later. But even so, that won't help you here, Romani said. This is between you and I. Yes, Madworth agreed. To the death. With that, Madworth split with blinding speed into 2, 4, 8, 16. Just as Gustav had done, locality is an illusion. There were 16 Madworths now, attacking Romani in a blur faster than the eye could see. She's whooshing, Max thought dully. 16 Madworths whooshing. Romani whirled in a blur to defend herself, becoming a dervish of kicks and punches. But quickly she was overwhelmed by the Madworths. Split, Max thought at Romani. Split yourself also. Defend yourself. But just as Romani was about to succumb and get trampled by an army of Madworths, she suddenly became a column of lush, smoky ash. A thick rope of dark, peppery soot now hung in the air. The Madworths seemed to go berserk and scream like banshees. They slashed and hacked into the cloud, but found no purchase. There was nothing solid within. Gargling in frustration, the Madworths changed strategy. Quickly, each Madworth turned to its neighbor, and they all sort of walked inside one another with a fleshy, smacking sound. They coalesced, becoming one whole being again. Then, the resultant single Madworth turned into a fount of dirty water, gushing like sewage up into the column of ash. Max understood immediately. Madworth was, Madworth was trying to somehow absorb Romani, mix her sludge water with Romani's ash, and together become a kind of mud, dragging her opponent to the ground. The battle had taken the form of pure essence versus pure essence. Romani countered by becoming a column of flame. It was like a piece of the sun had suddenly fallen into the room. She burned Madworth's spout of dirty water. Violent gouts of steam hissed and bucked around the pillar of fire. Max heard Madworth's voice issue out of the steam, howling in pain and frustration. Abruptly, Madworth materialized again, bodily. It was like she had momentarily weakened, bumped out of supernormal reality, causing her to fall back into the normal grooves of the universe. And in those grooves, she was required to exist as a limited flesh and blood being. She lay on the floor, visibly scarred and wounded, but not for long. Snarling, Madworth flopped over and popped to her feet. The column of fire that was Romani was still before her, blazing intense light in every direction. Romani apparently had Madworth at her mercy. The pillar bent backwards like a python of flame about to strike. But Madworth suddenly grinned and oddly seemed to slough apart, falling into a thousand pieces. A horrific guttural thrumming, a sort of low buzzing filled the air. And then Max realized that Madworth had just become a cloud of angry bees. They aimed, with an intelligence and purpose that seemed supernatural in a horde of insects, directly for the heart of the flame pillar. Max didn't understand. Bees were no match for fire. The swarm would be consumed upon impact. Thousands of charred little bodies would riddle the floor within seconds. What the hell did Madworth think she was doing? 
Even Romani seemed taken aback. The movement of her fire pillar betrayed hesitation and confusion. But just before the horde hit, Madworth sprung her trap. She transformed again. Every single bee compressed, tightened. The matter comprising them became infinitely small. And suddenly, what had become an angry hive of insects was now a cloud of microscopic black holes. A thousand tiny event horizons pierced the flame, their immense gravity wells immediately sapping the fire of its power. The pillar wavered visibly. The black cancer within its light engulfed it. It bent forward and bucked and twisted like an animal, trying in vain to shake off a predator in the grasslands. Madworth had been clever. Black holes could not be burned by flame. They were nothingness, vacuum incarnate, and they were the only things that could conceivably consume a flame itself. The fire pillar was abruptly snuffed out, and a whistling screech of flame death filled the air. Romani suddenly appeared. Now it was she who had been kicked from supernormal reality. Her sagging form fell to the ground with a thud. Max gasped as he got a glimpse of her. She was pocked with a thousand tiny holes. Little red pinpricks covered her face, her hands, her legs. They were everywhere. It was as if all the cells in her body had burst at once. But Max knew what it was. The black holes. Thousands of them had carved through her body, leaving behind a trail of myriad microscopic tunnels. Siren stared at her like he was seeing a ghost. With a start, Max realized that if Romani healed, she would look exactly like him. She would wear the intaglio of thousands of tiny white scars, just as he did. This must have been the same sort of thing that had once scarred Siren long ago. But she would not heal, Max suddenly knew. Romani was broken. She would not live long. If not for her strong mind, she would be dead already. Her eyes met Max's. Her mouth formed a simple word. Run. The black cloud swirled and solidified. Madworth materialized, cawing and gloating over her fallen foe. Run! Tears streaming down his cheeks, Max tore out of the room in a whoosh. He glanced once over his shoulder. Madworth picked Romani up off the ground and threw her heart into the far wall. Romani's eyes were on Max the whole time, and he even thought he glimpsed her smiling. His heart was breaking as he understood. Romani was sacrificing herself for him. He would be long gone before Madworth remembered him. She was too lost in her own mad revenge on the gypsy girl of long ago. Max fled through the ballroom, eyes hunting for Ian. He spotted him alone in the balcony. He had no idea what had become of Faliero, and right now he didn't care. Without a thought, Max whooshed faster than anyone could see. He snagged Ian as he tore by, carrying him away so fast that he appeared to simply vanish right in front of everyone's eyes. You've been listening to Max Quick, Book 2, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on this patio book, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The print version of both The Pocket and the Pendant, Max Quick Book 1, and The Two Travelers, Max Quick Book 2, are available at lulu.com in paperback format, PDF format, and hardcover. <laughs>